So this subject, has the church replaced Israel, has been a question that has reverberated through the church right down through the last probably 1900, 1800 years. And it still continues today, and probably will continue to the end of the age. Ever since I've been a child, I've had a curiosity about the Jew, and wondered why, why is he different? Why is this book, you know, mostly about him? Um, why are there still things prophesied about him that have not yet been fulfilled? And so, over the years, I've, I've sort of looked and, and wondered and watched and questioned, and I'm still doing that. I don't have all the answers by far. And I'm no academic, but um, I trust that what I have to share to, with you tonight will cause you to think. I like to get people to think, okay? And I put questions in people's minds. And I don't know, you know, if I was to take a survey of all you guys tonight, where you would stand in this question. How many of you would believe the church has replaced Israel? How many would say the opposite? Because there are two camps. And <clears throat> this is a question which we're going to try and uh, sort of look at a bit tonight. Now, this, this is a fast subject. And really tonight we're going to be flying at 300,000 feet <laughs> looking down, okay? We're just going to get a glimpse of the big picture, I hope. Um, and hopefully it will cause you to think a little bit more about the subject. Is it relevant to me? Um, because I do believe it's a very important subject in the fact that it, few, it makes us see the, the Bible very differently depending on which perspective we take. You know, if, if we believe that the church is now Israel, then we have to view the Bible in a very different way to how we have view it if we believe that Israel still has a purpose. So, there is a difference, a big difference. And that is a challenge to us, I think. I want to, first of all, start talking a little bit about the history of this. Before we get to the Bible, I want to give an overview of, of history. Where does this uh, belief come from that the church has replaced Israel? Was it there from the very beginning? Or where did it develop? And then look a little bit at um, how things have developed through the age and where we're at today. And then we're going to go into scripture and we're going to look at what I call the pillars of the Old Testament that gives us something to build our theology on. Theology is very important, but we've got to, to know where that theology comes from. Is it man's view of God or is it God's view of man? And there's a big difference. And uh, theology keeps changing. I don't know if you've noticed, but theology changes with time. Just take an example. If, if um, John and Charles Wesley were to come back tonight and go into one of their local churches, would they recognize it? Theology has changed so much. So we see theology changes. Okay, And this theology... Um, depending on where you've lived in the, the world, which church you've gone to, will be very different. Now, the, the main theology that has been around since probably about the 4th century is known as covenant theology. Everyone heard of that term, covenant theology? Yeah? And this covenant theology takes the view that the church has now 
taken the place of Israel in God's economy. And it is now known as spiritual Israel. And all the promises that were given to Israel in the Old Testament now belong to the church. And any prophecies that were spoken of Israel that were not fulfilled at the first coming of Christ now are to be applied spiritually to the church. Okay? And also, um, when this was first sort of brought into the church, um, the, the view was that there is no millennium age. We are now in this age known as the millennium. Um, it, within covenant theology, there, there are three sort of departments, but the biggest one is what is known as amillennianism. Amillennianism meaning there is no millennium as such. It's just a period of time. But at the end of this age, Jesus will return and it will be the final state. Okay? There's not going to be no thousand years on earth where he will reign. Okay? That is one of the, the big things of covenant theology. Now this, this theology, really the seeds of this began by the end of the, the second century. And I'm just going to mention two people that were key people in the building of this covenant theology. A man by the name of Origen. And if you ever have time, go and do a bit of research on who, who this guy was. He was highly influenced by Greek thinking in his day, by Plato. And he applied a lot of his Greek thinking to the scripture. And I don't know how much you know about Greek thinking, but it's a form called dualism. And they separate the spiritual from the earthly. The, the heavenly is holy, the earthly is sinful. And they struggle with you know, God being both man and God. But Oregon was really the first one to, to, to really get this ball rolling. He had influences as well. But then he influenced people following after him. And the other person was Augustine, who was highly influenced by Origen. So Origen, he was an intellectual, very bright man, but he got into almost what we would call Gnosticism. Gnosticism is where um, you have to be very, very intelligent and see beyond the ordinary. And, and he, he moved into this, and um, he started to separate the, you know, the spiritual from the earthly, and that is very much Greek thinking. If you go back to your Old Testament, Hebrew thinking is body, soul, and spirit all together. Okay? No separation. You can go to the toilet and praise God as much as going to the synagogue. There's no difference. Um, man is a complete unit. You don't separate. Whereas in Greek thinking, that is totally different. And so Oregon began this whole process. And as I say, he then influenced others after him. But when we come to the, the fourth century, we come to Augustine. And he actually is known as the father, or one of the fathers of the Roman Catholic Church, one of the doctors of the Roman Catholic Church. And he actually cemented it into the church's thinking, this thing called covenant theology, that the church had now taken the place of Israel. Um, people who, who, who are into covenant theology don't like being called replacement theologists because they, they think that's too harsh. They, they see it more as we have um, just continued on from Israel. Now that Jesus has come, he has fulfilled all these promises, the church is now a continuation of Israel. And the nation of Israel as such 
has no more purpose in God's economy as such. Individual Jews can come to salvation, yes, just like Gentiles. But as far as having a future program for Israel, that is finished. Because Jesus has come as the seed, as the fulfillment of all the promises. And he is the answer to it all. And that is the conclusion of Israel, as far as God's purpose is with them, is, is concerned. You may have heard of this term, replacement theology. It also, you may have heard of, um, uh, what's the other term? Um, supersessionism, um, which really is just, the church has superseded Israel. Um, there is a new term within the last 40 years called new supersessionism. And there's also another term called new covenant theology, just within the last, probably, our generation. And they, they have changed their theology a little bit more, but we're not going to go there tonight. Okay? But just so you know, you know, theology does change. But for the main, we're, we're sticking with this covenant theology. So this, this theology um, basically is based on three pillars. So the first one is the spiritualizing of all prophecies that were not fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus. And so they're no longer to be taken in a literal sense, but they're spiritualized. Okay? Now, just looking back a little bit before that, the first coming of Jesus was fulfilled literally, wasn't it? So why do we change? Why do we change? That's one of the questions I would pose to you. Why do we change that? Why do we then spiritualize all these things to do with things that have not yet been fulfilled? The other, one of the other pillars is... Um, the church has now taken the place of Israel. Okay? And then the third one is, there's only going to be one resurrection. Um, there will be two, but the first one is only a spiritual resurrection as such. But at the end of this age, everyone will be resurrected, believer and unbeliever. There'll be the judgment and then the eternal state. Okay? Um, they, they, they really struggle with Revelation. Revelation 20 talks about the millennium six times, mentions a thousand years six times. In the Old Testament, Israel knew that there was a glorious time coming. You know, Isaiah, Micah talked about the great time when the people would beat their swords into plowshares. The land would lie down with the lamb, etc., etc. It didn't tell them how long that time would be. It just told them it was going to be a glorious time. Every man would sit under his own fig tree. There would be peace on earth. Righteousness would reign. The glory of the Lord would cover the land as the waters cover the sea. But in the revelation that John got, we're actually told how long that time will be. It will be a thousand years. So all that, as far as covenant theology goes, is not literal. It's purely to be spiritualized, and, and we are, we're now in that period of time. So that is sort of the, the very simple basics of, of covenant theology. Now, that progressed right through the medieval age, through the Dark Ages, and right through to the Reformation. And even in the Reformation, um, they still held on to this belief that the church was now Israel. And uh, if we um, just look at that particular time, you know, just prior to the Reformation, we started to get the Bible into our own hands. Ordinary people had the Bible for the first time that they could read for themselves. And as people began to read the Bible, some began to see, 
this doesn't quite make sense. You know, if I take a little sense of this, what I'm being taught with this covenant theology, um, it doesn't tend to fit. So questions arose. And uh, we, we then came to this thing called dispensational theology, which was credited to a man by the name of J.N. Darby. He and several others were the founders of the Plymouth Brethren movement. Now, before Darby, there are other people who believed that Jesus was coming to reign. If you look at some of Isaac Watts' hymns, Jesus shall reign, where are the sun? Or one of what we, we sing at Christmas, joy to the world. But if you read those words, you can see he believes that Jesus is going to reign on a little earth. Okay? So even though J.N. Darby is credited with this dispensational theology, others had a sense of this real millennial kingdom before he came. Now, dispensational theology sort of took off here in England and then spread to North America through a man called C.I. Schofield. You may have heard of the Schofield Bible, where he gave a lot of footnotes explaining his interpretation that really came from J.N. Darby. And that sort of flooded across a lot of the states. And that became quite a big thing. But it's interesting today that dispensationalism is, is sort of slowly dying. I, I know of two brethren churches, you know, not far from Carnforth, who were pre, you know, dispensationalists who are now gone back to covenant theology. Okay? So we, we see this creep back to covenant theology. And Darby, you know, had, one of his big things was the pre-tribulational rapture. And even many people who would have sort of agreed with this dispensationalism sort of weren't quite sure about that. And it's, it's actually stated that people like George Mueller, who headed up the homes in Bristol, who was one of the founder members of the Plymouth Brethren, disagreed with Darby on what he taught in dispensationalism. So dispensationalism in itself has got its problems. Okay, um, I, I admit that. I would tend to say I was a dispensationalist, not because of what Darby said, but because of what I understand from Paul's writings. You know, Paul talks about ages past. He talks about this present age. He talks about the age to come. And if we just take an example of, you know, if we had been living pre the cross, Ephesians tells us that we were without hope and without God. That's not true today, is it? So we're living in a different age today to what we were before the cross. And so God has a different program for different timescales. And when we get to the millennium, that's going to be different again. Um, very different to how we're living now. There'll be no more sin. You know, we'll, we'll have perfect bodies. It'll be fantastic. So it's going to be a different age. So I do believe in dispensations. Um, and so even though Darby um, had problems you know, with people laughing at him and, and saying it was... Too, too outrageous. There is a certain truth, I believe, in dispensationalism. But, as I say, covenant theology is the major one. And it's very hard to say what percentage of the church worldwide belongs in covenant theology. Um, different people say different things. Some people say at least 75% of the church worldwide would hold this view. I would say it would even be more. Um, certainly within the state churches... I grew up in a Presbyterian church in Northern Ireland. It would hold a covenant view. Um, the United Presbyterian Church in the States 
would hold that view. It represents about 10,000 churches. Um, most of the Anglicans would take that view, I would say. Um, so this is, this is reality of where we're at today. And so you could say, well, if the majority believe it, you know, it must be true. Okay? But the majority is not necessarily always right. Okay? And so you know, it, we can grow up in a, in a church that teaches a certain theology, and if we don't question it, it just becomes part of us. And I always encourage people, question everything that is taught to you. Go back to the scripture and see if that's what really sits right with you there. And let the Spirit speak to your spirit and, and, and witness with your spirit that that is right. Okay? Because each one of us will stand before God and answer for ourselves. No one else is going to answer for us. And I love what Paul talked about the Bereans. You know, they didn't listen to what Paul said and just swallow it. They went back and they examined the scriptures to even see what Paul said was right. And so there, there we go. Okay, so um, I want to now just go to the scriptures and, and bring out what I think are major, major pillars of truth that we need to consider in the light of Israel and the church. And those are what I would term the covenants that God has made with Israel. Okay? Um, before we go to the first one, which is in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, I want to go to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, 10, 11, of course, are the, the big chapters in Paul's um, theology in trying to tell the Gentiles of their relationship with Israel. But in chapter 9, he starts off, and notice, first of all, the two witnesses that he has here. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. So first of all, he's telling us, I'm not speaking to you just as an ethnic Jew defending my own people. I'm speaking to you because I have the witness of Christ in me, and I have the witness of the Holy Spirit in my conscience. That's very powerful that he has two of the Godhead telling him that what he's saying is from the Godhead. It's not his own words. It's not man's words. It's God's words. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So here he's speaking about ethnic Israel, not the church, but his own people. Notice what he's now going to say. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God, and over all forever praised. Amen. Paul doesn't say here, theirs was. In the Greek, this is in the present continuous tense. So the, the church is already at least 20 years old by this stage. Romans was written, I think, around 56, 57 AD. So Paul is saying, you know, the church has begun, but these covenants still belong to Israel. They're current, they're ongoing. Okay? So Israel has not lost her covenants when the church began. Okay? Simple as that. So these covenants, Paul sees as being important in our understanding of this relationship between Israel and the church and the Gentile world that is coming to Christ. 
So we're going to quickly um, buzz through these covenants. Um, we could spend a night just in each one, but very briefly, going to the what is known as the Abrahamic covenant, and in chapter twelve, we're, we're first introduced to Abraham and God's meeting with him. And notice here, Abraham didn't go to God. Stephen tells us in Acts, just prior to his martyrdom, he says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So this is God's initiative. God appears to Abraham, and he starts the whole ball rolling of this covenant relationship he's going to have with a nation that descends, descends from Abraham. Okay? And we read the first three verses. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country and your people and your father's house and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So there's a number of things already within this. This is not the actual ratifying or cutting of the covenant. We'll come across that in uh, chapter 15. But already God is laying out um, what he wants to do through Abraham and his descendants and through his nation. First of all, he's going to bless them. He's going to give them a great name, but he's also going to make them a blessing. That's his intention of calling them, to make them a blessing. And He's wanting all the people on the earth to be blessed. So the purpose of creating Israel was to bring a blessing to the whole world. Now we know when we follow the history of Israel, there was a tendency among the Israelites to keep it to themselves. They weren't really fulfilling what God intended them to do. But when God starts something, he never ever lets it go on until he finishes it. And I would say God has not finished his work with Abraham. It is still yet to be fulfilled, come to a greater fulfillment. Notice verse 3, though, the warning there. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. So I believe that is a message to us today in the church. Be careful how you handle Israel. This is the eternal word of God. And if you curse God's descendants from Abraham, then you fear a curse from God. It's, that's a warning to me that I see in there. If we turn over to chapter 15, and this is very important. This is like one of what they call the old suzerain covenants that were enacted back in those days. And normally you had the more important member who would actually make the covenant, who would draw up the lines of what those, that covenant involved, was involved with, he would lay out um, the expectations and he would demand of the other person making the covenant to keep those, those rules. And normally in those covenants, then when they, they agreed, they would sacrifice animals, cut them in half, set them apart, and the two parties would walk between those animals. And that would signify that if I break, if any one of this party breaks this covenant, let me be like these animals. Okay? That was a pretty typical covenant that they made in those days. And so Abraham is told to lay all these animals out. But um, it tells us in verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. 
Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation... Your descendants will come back here, for the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Then notice verse 17 especially. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land, and on so and so and so and so. But notice verse 17, Abraham is in a deep sleep, and it's only God that goes between the pieces. So this is known as what is termed a unilateral covenant. It only depends on one party, that party being God. So it's not up to Abraham to keep this covenant. There was a condition that he had to circumcise his family. That was the only thing he had to do. But as far as the covenant itself He didn't walk between those pieces. So he didn't have to um, do anything for that particular covenant. It was all dependent on God. And we we must notice that if God is eternal, this covenant, how long does it last for? You know, eternal covenant. Now, as you move through the book of Genesis, you will find that God then renews this covenant, first with Isaac, then with Jacob, okay, and with the nation that followed so it's not just to Abraham, but he, he narrows it down to Isaac and then to Jacob. And Jacob had the 12 sons. And that's where the nation of Israel really went from. Now, if we go to Psalm 105, it's nicely sort of um, put together here for us. But I just want to pick up on what God actually brings out here. In the Psalm 105 and verse 5, verse 4, Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he has pronounced. O descendants of Abraham, his servant, O of sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The words he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac, He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as a portion you will inherit. So, first of all, he says, he remembers his covenant forever, and he says his word he commands for a thousand generations. How long is a thousand generations? Well, normally a generation is roughly about 40 years. Israel wandered in a desert for 40 years for a generation to die out. But even if we cut that in half and say just 20 years, how long is that? 20,000 years. How long ago was this written? Not even 4,000 years ago. So we're still a long way to go for this covenant to terminate. So as far as I understand the scripture, God has made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants regarding the land that it is theirs forever. The title deeds to the land of Canaan is in heaven. <laughs> and we can shout and scream and do whatever, but 
we can't do anything to the title deeds. That's, that's how I see it. Um, and so when we see nations saying this land belongs to this lot and this part of the land belongs to that part, well, that's man's idea. It's not what God says. And when they do that, they come up against God. If you just turn to Joel chapter 3, and Joel, as you know, is very much about the day of the Lord coming, the day of great judgment. But in the beginning of chapter 3, it reads, In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel, for they scattered my people among the nations, and what? Divided up my land. So because the nations have divided up his land, God is coming into judgment with them. Now this, this has not ever happened. This is still a future event. I believe it's to do with the day of the Lord right at the end of this age. But this is the big difference it makes if you take a covenant viewpoint. Because this is a, a prophecy yet unfilled, they spiritualize that. They say it's not literal. And, and so it doesn't have a literal meaning. And they, they have to reinterpret it. Part of the problem with covenant theology is how do you reinterpret a prophecy and there are so many you go to the end of Ezekiel and try to interpret that in a spiritual way you could come up with a thousand different ways of spiritualizing it what is the key to spiritualizing these things if you say they're no longer literal there is a problem there, a big problem and I don't know how you get around that but that's what they say Okay, so that's the Abrahamic covenant The next one that he made was known as the Mosaic Covenant. After Israel came out of Egypt, six weeks later they came to Sinai and they entered into another covenant with the Lord. And if we go to Exodus 24, we're going to see that this covenant is different. This is going to be known as a bilateral covenant because two parties are now involved here. And unlike the Abrahamic covenant where it was totally dependent on God, dependency now is going to be on both parties. And if we read in Exodus 24, verse 3, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. And then we go to verse 8. Um, or, well, let's go to verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So we see now Israel is locked into this covenant. They have agreed to do everything God has asked of them. And the covenant has been sealed with them being sprinkled by blood. And so this covenant, which contains a lot of the law, well, all of the law, 613 laws, Israel is now committed to obeying. And we have the whole history of what happened. The funny thing, it's not funny, funny, it's funny, peculiar, is that Moses even told them before, before they fell that, they were going to fall. He knew they were not going to keep it. 
Um, they, in a sense, they were doomed to failure because this law, it was a perfect law, but they could not keep this perfect law. The law told them exactly what God demanded. There was nothing wrong with the law, but the law in itself could not help them keep it. They had to do it out of their own effort. And you read right through your Old Testament, and it's just story after story after story of failure, failure, failure. But what was the purpose of the law? What does Galatians tell us? What was the purpose of the law? Amen. The whole idea of the law was to show them that they needed something more than the law. And it was to point them to Christ. The whole purpose of the law, to bring them to Christ. And when we think of this particular covenant, it is the only one that they could break. We're going to look at two more, but this is the only covenant that they could break because it was the only covenant that they agreed to keep. And it was the only covenant where two parties um, were locked into. Now, if we go to um, Deuteronomy 29... There was a bit of an addition added to this covenant, it appears. It says in verse 1, These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab, in addition to the covenant he had made with them at Horeb. And you can read right down through that covenant. But basically, the part of this covenant has to do with the right to stay in the land. The land is theirs. That cannot be changed. That is fixed by the Abrahamic covenant. But what the Mosaic covenant does is make conditions as to their right to stay in the land. And if they do not obey the law, if they break this law, God says, I'm going to remove you. And history shows us that that's what he did. But if we go then to chapter 30, where it says, verse 1, When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, And you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make it more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. That sounds very like the new covenant, doesn't it? Israel's problem was their heart. And God wanted them to circumcise their heart, not just their flesh, but their heart. And Israel could not do that because she didn't have the power to do it, because Christ had not yet come. Yet here we have this promise of a restoration to the land and a change of the heart so that they can keep his laws. But we see here the Mosaic Covenant made it conditional to staying in the land, and history shows us they left because of their disobedience. But here there's a promise of restoration and a change of heart. Yeah. Mosaic Covenant. 
The next one is the Davidic covenant, and there are two places where that is sort of laid out, both in Chronicles and Samuel. But I want to go to Psalm 89, which just really um, puts it all together, um, condenses it all. And just see again what the Davidic covenant is about. Verse 3 of Psalm 89. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Um, Verse 27. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I believe this is speaking of the Messiah. 29. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. Then he goes on about how he will punish you know, David's descendants for their iniquity. But in verse 33, But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon the faithful witness in the sky. So the, the, sort of the basics of the Davidic covenant is that God promised to David he always would have one of his descendants to sit on his throne, on David's throne, and reign eternally, an eternal king. Yeah. And this is something that the whole nation of Israel looked to. Now, it seems that they did not really know what this person was going to be like. They weren't sure if he was going to be a superhuman. They, didn't, they weren't quite sure if he would be God. But they knew this promise that one day David's throne would be secure forevermore. And it's interesting that God here actually swears. Um, he says in verse 35, Once for all I have swollen, sw- sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, and promises him a throne to endure forever. So if, if this throne is not, or this promise is not fulfilled, then we have to conclude that God's name is not worthy. It's as simple as that. If God swears by his name, and he does not fulfill what he promised, then he's a liar. That's how serious this covenant is. Um, and so this has not happened. You know? <laughs> David's throne was in Jerusalem. It wasn't in heaven. But he, he promises him that he will sit on his throne um, and it will be established forever. Remember what Gabriel said to Mary when um, he came to announce to her the coming of Jesus? One of the things he said, his father will give to him the throne of his father David. And as yet, we don't see Jesus sitting on David's throne. It's still a future event. I believe this is speaking of the millennium age. We we know from Revelation chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, Jesus talks about his present state. He's sitting by his father on his father's throne. In Matthew, he talks about the day when he will sit on his glorious throne, his own personal throne which will be the throne of David. So I see from this particular covenant a promise that one day Jesus must sit in the throne in Jerusalem, the throne of David, 
and he must sit there eternally, okay, forevermore. Now, it's not the throne of any other nation. It's the throne of David. Where did David come from? Which tribe did David come from? Judah. We sang about him tonight, didn't we? The Lion of Judah. So he's coming back to the tribe of Judah, which was part of the nation of Israel. So how do we get around this covenant? How do we, how do we you know, spiritualize this? How, how would you go about spiritualizing this covenant if you don't want to take it literally? That would be my question to you on this. Okay, one more covenant. And a couple of places. If we go to Ezekiel 36... And this is, again, the whole context is speaking to the mountains of Israel, really to the, the land of Israel, to the nation. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. Pretty straightforward, as far as I can see. (laughs) But again, it's this promise of changing that heart of stone that Israel had that meant that they could not keep what God demanded of them. If we go to um, Jeremiah 31, 31, this is really the, the, the main passage on the new covenant that I believe you and I presently enjoy, that we are grafted into. (coughs) But this particular covenant, notice who it's first and foremost made with. 3131, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So we've again two covenants mentioned in here. The old, the Mosaic covenant. The only one that they could break was the Mosaic Covenant. And because they broke it, God says, the time is coming when I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And it's going to be very different to that Mosaic Covenant. Instead of writing it on tablets of stone and in a book, I'm going to write it on your heart. Okay? So this new covenant is made specifically with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The church isn't mentioned here. Very specifically, the whole nation of Israel, northern and southern kingdoms. So that's our four covenants. And the big question then arises, how do we fit into this? You know, where is the church? The church is not mentioned in the Old Testament, but the covenant viewpoint is that Israel was a church in the Old Testament. That is a pretty standard belief that they have. 
My question would be, how could the church be in the Old Testament if it's built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets? There's no apostles in the Old Testament. Jesus says in Matthew 16, future tense, I will build my church. If the church was already in the Old Testament, how would he start to build it? If it already had begun. And yet, covenant theology would say, Israel was a church in the Old Testament. The church is Israel in the New Testament. So it raises more questions. Time is running away. Um, Have I got five more minutes? Okay. Right, I want to go to Ephesians. Um, I spoke on this um, in Hunter Street prior to COVID um, about the one new man. And one of the big questions that arises is, where does the Gentiles fit into this new covenant? Where does the church fit into Israel? Is the church part of Israel? Is Israel part of the church? Or is Israel not in the church, but later on will come in? And so it's trying to get our head around that a little bit. Um, and it's understanding this whole concept, the one new man, that Paul says was a mystery in the Old Testament. Paul reveals about five mysteries that were unknown in the Old Testament. And one of them is this mystery that God's purpose in Christ, or one of his purposes in Christ, was to create one new man out of two, Jew and Gentile together. And when we look at the early church, it began more or less totally Jewish. There were some proselytes, but it started in Jerusalem during the Feast of um, Weeks. Jews had come up for that feast. Pentecost happened. The church was born, and 3,000 people came in. Probably all Jewish, apart from maybe some proselytes. But proselytes were those who had given up their own faith and joined into the Jewish way of living and faith and got circumcised, etc., so the, the early church was all Jewish, right to chapter 10 of Acts, when Cornelius comes in, the first Gentile. And, and yet God is saying here in Ephesians that he wants to create one new man out of two. Um, the dark verse in chapter 2 of Ephesians is, um, let's see, yeah, verse 16, or verse 12, sorry. Speaking to the Gentiles, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Those are the covenants given to Israel. We were outside of those. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And then um, later on he says in verse 19, consequently, Gentiles... You're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So a new entity has been formed here called the church that was unknown in the Old Testament times. Paul tells us that in chapter 3, Verse 4, in reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So this church is now made up of Two peoples, 
Jew and Gentile, one new man. And so we can say that the church is partly Israel because Jews, Israelites have come in, believing Jews have come in to believe into the church and they've been united with Gentile believers. There is a big section of Israel that is still in unbelief, but they're still called Israel. And if you follow Paul's um, letters, you will see he keeps um, making a difference between Jews and Gentiles right through his letters. Um, and and we'll, we'll read one at the very end. Um, some people will quote that verse from Galatians, that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Jew or Gentile, uh, male or female, slave or free. But the whole context of that passage is faith in Christ. It's not talking about ethnicity, because if it was, then he's saying there's no difference between male and female. Well, something's wrong with my eyes if that's the case. You know? So it's not about our sex or our ethnicity or our position in life. It's about our faith in Christ. There is no difference. So in the church, there are Israelites, there are Gentiles united in Christ. And it's a, it is, in that sense, a continuation of Israel. It's not replacing Israel. It's a continuation of Israel. But yet there's still a section of Israel that as yet remains um, away from God. But there are many, many prophecies, as we've read even in, in Deuteronomy 30, that day when he will restore them to the land, restore them to himself, and give them this new heart. So this new covenant did begin. Jesus inaugurated it you know, at the Last Supper. But a greater fulfillment is yet to happen in the future when all Israel will come in. It won't be, um, you know, it talks about two-thirds of Israel being destroyed during the time of Jacob's trouble, so it won't be the whole nation as such that we know today. Many will die, but what is remaining will be renewed and brought to the Lord. And I could go on and on and on and on, but uh, I hope I've said enough just to give you some idea of, of where we're at with Israel being the church, or the church being Israel. I hope you see that God has not finished with this nation. He has brought them into the church and he has united Gentiles with them. And he wants us to work together. And we look down at church history and we haven't done a very good job of that, actually. It's been a bit sad. And I believe we were meant to bless each other in order that God might be glorified. And God is waiting to see his church unite, Jew and Gentile becoming one new man. Not two individuals, but one new man like husband and wife. And we have failed so miserably in that. Maybe just one more verse in Romans 15. As time has run away. He's um, been receiving gifts from people in Macedonia to take to Jerusalem. But he says... um, starting partway through verse 27. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they ought to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Have we received spiritual blessing from Israel? What did Jesus say to the lady of Samaria? Salvation is of the Jews. It's through that nation that he brought salvation to the world. We owe them a debt. 
And Paul is saying here, if you've received spiritual blessing, you ought to them to give from your material blessings. And I guarantee if you went around all the churches in Britain today and asked, let me see your books, how much are you given to Jewish evangelism? I wonder, would you see 5% of churches doing that? Because most churches believe that God has finished with that nation. And we are now part of Israel. We are Israel. So why give to a nation when we are that nation? So that's the problem I see today. Um, and most definitely, you know, I believe that um, the church has not replaced Israel. But God wants the church to have a, a concern for Israel. We see that in Paul's life. You know, he, he would die for his nation to come to know the Lord. And we read our church history and it's desperate, desperate what we've done to the Jew. You know, the biggest tragedy I've seen in the Holocaust is that the Holocaust did not happen in a Muslim land, Hindu land, a pagan land. It happened in one of the most Christianized countries in Europe. How could that happen? And Martin Luther, this is a mystery, the man who brought so much light to the church, you know, salvation by faith alone in Christ, four days before he died, said that Germany should excommunicate all Jews from the land. He wrote a booklet called The Jews and Their Lies. You read that, it's horrendous what he said. And this is not just Martin Luther, but you can write down through history and see this animosity of the church against the Jew. Even Augustine said, let them strive, but do not let them thrive. Okay? Keep the Jews to remind us that they crucified Jesus. That was never Paul's attitude. That was never Jesus' attitude. On the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Amen?